I just from minute one had conviction that if I built this two-sided marketplace by real active buyers who were making a very expensive, valuable purchase, that I would have a way to monetize it. But from minute one, I didn't know how I was going to monetize it. I'm Peplin. I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win? This week, Vinay Bagat, founder and CEO of TrustRadius, a company that revolutionizes how businesses buy software by providing detailed user reviews. Discover how TrustRadius tackled the challenge of creating a trusted, quality-centric review platform in a market saturated with quantity-focused competitors. And learn about the strategic decisions that propel their journey from concept to a successful monetization model. Let's get into it. I was still involved in the last company that I founded, Convio. We're about 450 people and had started to buy a fair amount of infrastructure tech to run our business. There was one particular piece of software that my team bought for HR, where we follow the advice of the Gartner Magic Quadrant. We spoke to the references that the salesperson provided and then made a decision on a platform, signed a large two-year agreement with them, and then realized that the product, after rolling it out, didn't meet our specific requirements. And the, the hard lesson was there are plenty of good products out there. They may not be right for you. Every company has a nuanced use case and that a simple thing like a two by two isn't going to help you determine if the product's right for your use case. And references, if they're supplied by the vendor, obviously have an inherent bias. They weren't from the same industry that we're in. So we never got to really unpack the core of whether the solution was going to work for us. Around the same time I was buying a coffee machine for my house, I asked a friend of mine, a doctor who drinks a lot of coffee, which, which machines to buy. He recommended Jura. I went to Williams-Sonoma. They tried to sell me a machine they had in-house. I didn't quite trust the advice I was getting, so I went online, and I stumbled across a site called Coffee Geeks that had really detailed reviews of these appliances by mavens, experts in these products who could tell you what it's like to own and maintain and clean these machines, et cetera. And I was just blown away that that existed for a consumer purchase and didn't exist for B2B. So the epiphany I had was it's really hard to buy enterprise software well. Nuance matters, use case matters a great deal. And so solving that problem of actually providing a service that was actually useful to a buyer beyond a ranking system, which to me is one size fits all, was the big epiphany. In a way, your business is like a marketplace model, right? Mm -hmm. And so yeah. there's a chicken and an egg situation happening, the cold start problem. What was your first version that you went to market with and how did you overcome the initial cold start problem? We bootstrapped for our first year and ran a private beta. To get the initial content, I literally went to friends in town who were running different tech companies or different companies and said, can I come in and interview your teams? For example, one of the guys I knew was the CEO of Bizarre Voice at the time. He had a pretty good sized team. I went in there with my keyboard and started to ask them questions, wrote reviews manually. I had a co-founder, the guy who was the CTO at my last company. He was building the platform at the same time. We manually uploaded all of that initial content, the first 100 reviews. Uh, and that created a kernel of content for people to come and explore and look at. We figured out a way to just call content people on LinkedIn. We manually mined LinkedIn to see who knew something about different products contacted them, got a certain response rate, then figured out how to scale. 
We found a scraping tool that would allow us to do that on mass. We then found a way to guess people's email addresses that experimented to the point of driving thousands of outreach messages a month. And then we realized that in B2B, because there are often a finite number of people who know something about a product, you need to get a healthy response rate in order to get meaningful data. We realized that we had to use small financial incentives to drive a response that we needed. So that was really our first year, experimenting how to drive content from total strangers, figuring out how to populate content. And then what we realized is that now we were starting to generate interesting content. It was key to generate audience. And then so we started to think about how do we do different dynamic mashups of the content to create more traffic. We realized that people search with different key terms. Aside from reviews, they would often search for things like alternatives or comparisons. So we started to create new content types on our website that were married to these different search terms, but using the same underlying content, just matched up in different ways. You started in 2012, right? Yeah. And G2 was also launched the same year, if I'm not mistaken. So yes. back when you were starting, what was the competitive landscape like? How much did you think about competition or look at competitors? Well, Gartner existed, but Gartner Peer Insights, their kind of in-house review platform had not been birthed. It was birthed a few years later. Captera, Software Advice, and GetApp all existed. They were digital marketplaces. At the time, none of them were review sites. They were just listing directories. A year or two into our development, they started to add reviews to their site. You could see that they were trying to emulate us. I didn't learn about G2 for probably about a year, where we both kind of came out more publicly. But really, the competitive landscape was pretty bare at the time. You had these listing directories, but I always felt they're sort of in a different category. They're 100% pay-for-play where you buy up, buy your ranking in a listing. And my ethos from, from day one was how do we create something truly of use to the buyer, not just a quick lead arbitrage site, but something that buyers would find engaging and spend material time on. Tell me about the monetization part. How did you first tackle monetization? How long did it take you to hit 1 million in revenue? I didn't even attempt monetization for about two to three years because... I had conviction that were we to build a network effect of scale, that there would be ways to monetize, most likely from the vendor rather than the buyer. So I had a belief set that we were going to monetize the vendor and not put a paywall up to the buyer. I'd seen what Angie's list had done in terms of trying to put a gating factor to the consumer and ultimately hadn't scaled that well. I kept my burn rate super low for the first couple of years, but the first year as two co-founders not taking a salary, I had one person that I hired from my former company. And even thereafter, for the next couple of years, we just kept the team super small. We got to about 100,000 monthly uniques, and then we started to get inbound interest from vendors. Marketo, for example, was one of the first vendors who came to us and said, we think you're doing something interesting. You're becoming influential in our marketplace. We need a review presence. And so the first material offering that was commercialized and got us to a million in ARR was a review management program where we drove reviews as a service for vendors. Now, what we learned through that was a couple of things. One was instead of just creating generic reviews, the reviews would be more impactful if we customized them. So as we started to commercialize the service for vendors, we created a mechanism where we could ask different questions by product or by category. Marketo trying to compete against Eloqua primarily at that time. What were the differentiating points that they wanted to emphasize? Rather than hoping they would come out in someone's review by asking generic questions, we asked pointed questions. 
that helped tease out that differentiation and helped the buyer ultimately understand the daylight, the distance between products. What we then also realized was the content we were generating was of use to brands themselves as a form of social proof. So we layered on a mechanism for brands to select which reviews they wanted to promote in their own channels to cut the reviews up into quotes or sound bites to tag those reviews by theme. This is a quote about Eloqua. This is a quote about a feature. This is a quote from a particular type of customer. And then we enabled different mechanisms for them to use that content. We had an integration with Salesforce that fed the content to reps. We created a web syndication mechanism for people to bring that content into their website. So that became the next form of monetization for us, where we bundled the process of driving reviews, the process of customizing the questions to the license of the content and the tools to use the content. And I created something more inherently sticky than just a one-time review gen campaign. Probably spent our first three to six just building that service, review management and content syndication. I would say about four years ago now, we realized that the data that we were sitting on was extremely interesting, right? We were identifying patterns of people's research, tracking exactly what they were doing on our site. We started to use reverse IP to figure out which companies they were coming on and realized that the data set that we're unearthing in terms of intent signals was very interesting. But honestly, I just from minute one had conviction that if I built this two-sided marketplace by real active buyers who were making a very expensive, valuable purchase, that I would have a way to monetize it. But minute one, I didn't know how I was going to monetize it. Vinay mentions he didn't have a good market strategy from day one, a risky tactic in building a business. However, he knew that by keeping his burn rate low and creating a valuable product, the monetization model would eventually present itself. Listen to my interview with Chris Federspiel as they discuss a similar point around experimenting with go-to-market. After I was in the market for a while, I finally understood that it's a very real, painful thing if you have no focus. So it took us about 100 prospect conversations to find out what features people could group together. So you can market to 200 people and you can make relationships with them, but you couldn't do that to everyone. It took us a long time to figure out this go-to-market, but once we did and we found our focus, we then started double each year. We went from one-ish million to 16 million. So how long did it take you to hit 1 million after you started monetization efforts? Within the first year of monetization, we hit about a million. What kind of a company were you going after as your customer? Were you like, okay, all B2B businesses or were you like focused? The coverage of the business almost defined who we could sell to. So we were really strong in MarTech initially, marketing automation, social media, a lot of our Early revenue customers were in those segments. We then bridged into things like HR, et cetera. It was more driven by category versus company size. Over time, we've certainly found that multi-hundred person companies who have multiple products are a better fit for us. They'll spend more. They tend to be able to have the resources to devote to a successful engagement. Once you hit that first million in revenue, what changed in terms of your product strategy or how you were acquiring customers? We started as a service-enabled business. It was generating reviews for brands. And so we were really focused on how do we create something that is less reliant on human beings. We've always had human beings vetting quality and making sure reviews were legitimate. But what really changed was the focus on trying to create an enduring technology-led product that people would stick with. And hence the focus on 
really trying to help harvest the content and make it be useful in other channels. And then honestly, the data side of the business is now a good half of our company to date. The emphasis on how to make the data as pristine as possible and as useful as possible. What that drove is a lot of integrations into other systems to make our data useful in those systems. How are you today thinking about competing in your category against other review marketplaces? Sometimes we get grouped in the same bucket as a software advisor or a Captera. If we're in a deal cycle like that, one of us is in the wrong place. We don't do the same things. Those are lead arbitrage platforms. Like if it works for you, if the economics work, great. But we do different things. Today, we position ourselves as a buyer intelligence platform. For the last seven years, we've run a research study called the B2B Disconnect, where we survey about 2,000 buyers about their behaviors and what influences them. And what we've learned is that buyers are really trying to unpack the right product for their use case. The two things that matters to them is who is the reviewer? Is it someone like me? Is it someone I can relate to? And the second is what do they have to say? A lot of vendors care a lot about scores. They care a lot about badges and awards. We found in our research that buyers do not care about those things anywhere near to the same degree. Ultimately, the right product is not going to show up in a score. It's just going to show up in what the tangibility of what people have to say. So where we've really tried to differentiate in ourselves in our marketplaces is with the content. Driving long-form reviews, what is their experience with our products? What is the use case they're using the solution for? What alternatives do they consider? How else is this product distinct from others in, in the marketplace? We also created an algorithm where we weight our independent data a lot more than reviews and ratings driven by vendors. We also put an acute emphasis on quality control and fraud management. We reject about 50% of the reviews that come in that we either view as fraudulent or don't meet our quality standards. Those are the things that we do underneath the hood, but what we're really trying to do is create a content base that the buyers can trust. What that has allowed us to do is to attract differentiated audience. We only overlap about 27% with G2, about 11% with Gardner's properties. And we've created an audience that is 75% decision makers and it skews more upmarket than those other sites. And it's allowed us to carve a niche where brands who want to reach a mid-market enterprise audience come to us. Or well, the other reason they come to us is because they are believers in social proof. They understand that the content that we're generating is something that they can harness and leverage. We want to be the high quality, high integrity platform in terms of both our data and our content. What we've also realized through our research is that reviews are only part of the mix. People want demos, they want pricing, they want security data, they want integration data, feature data. They want to talk to other reviewers. We've created through partnership, a one-stop shop for the buyers. So the idea is how do we create this one-stop shop for the buyer to do independent research and give them a place where they know that they can trust in the data and the content that they're seeing. It's not an easy message to get out there and really differentiate yourself, but the people who have leaned into it see huge daylight between us and our competition as a result of our approach. What kind of strategic trade-offs does it bring? What do you say no to, if, if I compare you to, let's say, G2, what kind of decisions yeah. have you made that they cannot make? It's quantity versus quality, right? So we're not obsessed with the absolute quantity of reviews about a product. A lot of what they've done is build algorithms into their site award mechanisms, reward mechanisms, incentive mechanisms for vendors to basically compete on quantity. We don't emphasize it 
as much because we don't believe that's ultimately what helps buyers make decisions. We want you to have statistically significant data. And then your placement on the grid is based upon your score, which again is moderated by using our independent algorithm and then your traffic. So we're trying to give people a more objective view of how popular a product is and how well it scores amongst its customers without introducing this notion of quantity of reviews, which a brand can manipulate. We're not just trying to have a vanity metric and we're really trying to make sure the content that we publish is genuinely useful to the buyer. So that whole ethos is what drives us. If a brand comes to us and their expectations are not aligned, they're not going to be a fit. We're not going to sell companies that aren't sort of aligned to our value proposition. What are some of the strategic bets you have made that did not work out? A few years into the company's life cycle, around the same time we were testing review management as a service, we did test a lead offering where we try to create buying guides about different product categories. And then we tested trying to drive leads through our platform that we can then sell onto brands. We were able to drive some high quality leads, but it just didn't scale. We just didn't have the volume at the time to do that offering. So we weren't optimized for lead generation like a Captera that was a pure and simple machine really focused on that. It didn't scale because we didn't have the right site dynamics in order to have that monetization model. How are you guys competing on sales and marketing? We have a small go-to-market team today. We have a, a team that's dedicated to new logos. We have an account team that's really focused on renewing and expanding existing accounts. Expansions are a huge part of our growth. About 50% of our growth comes from expanding existing customers versus net new. And then we have a global team focused on kind of the world's largest tech companies, you know, the IBM, Cisco's. Google's of this world. And that has proven to be a strong segment for us in particular, so those very large brands. What we've tried to do is set realistic market quotas for these economic conditions for each of those tiers. And from a demand gen perspective, it's sort of an integrated approach. The reps are responsible for their own pipeline generation. We have a small BDR function and then marketing doing both brand and demand gen campaigns. We don't have a huge marketing budget. So we're not doing a lot of paid media. We do a lot of organic uh, work to build content that we think the market wants. So I would say a lot of focus on thought leadership, a lot of focus on trying to create interesting content, minimal paid spend today. Rene mentions burning less on paid ad spend and focusing more on creating useful content. Listen to Gleb Budman, founder of Backblaze, make a similar point about their strategy. Since we were bootstrapped, we didn't have money to spend on big ad campaigns. The way that we went to market was we primarily wrote blog content that people liked, that would bring people to the website. That worked for consumers, but it actually worked for businesses as well. And so a lot of growth came through that approach. We have the only public data set on the internet of how reliable our hard drive. And people love that data. They read those and we publish that quarterly and it goes viral. And so that builds awareness. We engage with the community around that and that content and community ends up being a really efficient way to get people to us. If you look back at your journey with Trust Radius over the last 12 years, what are three pieces of advice you would give to fellow B2B founders? 
I think you have to be really clear about what you want. I made a conscious decision in building Trust Radius not to capitalize it really heavily relative to at least my market space. When you build a two-sided marketplace, it is very hard to do that purely in a bootstrap fashion. There are some businesses that lend themselves to bootstrapping, and there are others that do require some outside capital. But I think going in consciously with what are you trying to build will dictate your funding and your execution strategy. I didn't completely bootstrap, but I also didn't go for broke in terms of raising funds. I wanted to control the destiny and the, my ownership of the company, frankly, by taking a moderated approach, raising a sufficient amount of capital to achieve what we needed to do to get a flywheel of a two-sided marketplace off the ground, but not so sufficient that we became dependent on capital for growth. So we're now cash flow positive and self-sufficient. We are in control of our own destiny, but it meant that we grew slower than G2. That was, that was, a, that was just a direct correlation to how much capital we raised and, and the approach that we took. So you have to kind of have conviction in terms of the path that you're taking. Is it right for you? I chose this path mainly because I had a company beforehand that we raised a lot more capital. We took it public, but at the end of the day, my ownership was heavily diluted through all the rounds of financing and so forth, and just decided that this more moderate conservative approach of raising enough to get the company sufficient to scale, but not so much that you had a huge overhang and an evaluation expectation to hit with private investors. I didn't want to have that again, but you have to do what's right for you. There are some people who are born bootstrappers and there's some people who lean really well into the capitalization structure. I think when you go down the path of venture capital, you have to have conviction that there's enough of a TAM and there's enough of a growth potential to hit the market expectations of those private investors. Because as soon as you get off the rails and you're not growing at the pace they require you to, that's a difficult conversation. What else? The team is so critical and the team is not going to be the same team at all phases of evolution. We've gone through different rounds of leadership for different phases of growth. One of the things I've, I've learned to do better as a leader is have pattern recognition as to whether someone's right for us at that given time and when we've outgrown them. One of the things I've struggled with is having those difficult conversations with people when it's time to move on. I've learned to get better at it, but inherently, I think it's one of the hardest things CEOs have to do is recognizing when they've outgrown a team member and it's time to move them on. And then also encouraging that behavior across your leadership team as well. We always want the best for someone, but sometimes the best thing is for them to find another opportunity. And so learning how to do that graciously, learning how to do it in a timely fashion has been a big learning for me. And one more. We were not active with partnerships in the early phases of our company, and we've become much more thoughtful about our partnerships in the last three to four years. It's a factor of having kind of the right leaders on board. My chief product officer has been very active in driving important partnerships. My new chief revenue officer has been phenomenal. And so having the right people on board to drive partnerships is important. If done well, can give you leverage to help you compete with much larger players than yourself. So we're leaning heavily now into partnerships as a way to scale. Can you elaborate how one might want to think about setting up partnerships or how do they work? Or I think it's contingent on what your goals are. We serve consumers or buyers of tech and then we serve vendors. So we have partnerships that are really about making our product more compelling to the buyer. We've added in security data demo, interactive demos into our site. They're all about making our site more sticky and more compelling. And then on the economic side of things, we have 
intent partnerships. So we have some partnerships where our data is just carried into other systems. And by being present in those systems, it makes our offering stickier and creates a pull in terms of customers of those companies, like a Sixth Sense or a demand base wanting our data inside their systems. And now we're taking some of those relationships and creating reseller and channels through some of those entities. So where those companies are now financially motivated to carry our product to marketplace, it creates just a lot more leverage for us than doing something ourselves for distributing, say, our data. So how did TrustRadius win? One, they could not compete on quantity, so they focused on a specific thing they could win on, quality. We're really trying to make sure the content that we publish is genuinely useful to the buyer. We're not obsessed with the absolute quantity of reviews about a product. So we're trying to give people a more objective view of how popular a product is and how well it scores amongst its customers without introducing this notion of quantity of reviews, which a brand can manipulate. Two, they leverage strategic partnerships for scaling. We have partnerships that are really about making our product more compelling to the buyer. If done well, can give you leverage to help you compete with much larger players than yourself. They're all about making our site more sticky and more compelling. Three, they adapted services for market needs. We've also realized through our research, reviews are only part of the mix. People want demos, they want pricing, they want security data, they want integration data, feature data. They want to talk to other reviewers. We've created, through partnership, a one-stop shop for the buyers. And that's how you win. I'm Pep Lau. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.